0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing Boomers, a book by Helen Andrews. Helen, kick us off.
1: Well, this is a very interesting book. I have to say, I spent more time reading it than than thinking about it, and I'm kind of excited about our little, like, three-way discussion, because I really like our generation (laughs) discussions. Um, In some ways, it's, you know, it's quite a harsh book, um, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite stern and what have you, but I, I enjoyed the insights. And it's interesting because obviously generations, you know, I guess there's a sort of a, like a, an ambivalence about the value of generations as a, as a maybe political concept. On the one hand, well, on the one hand, yes, you know, does it fall into this sort of enemy making as political ideology that sustains, that is part of the utopian capitalist dialectic um, when it's not really generations per se that are at fault, but rather wider political um, and economic uh, moments that sort of generate a culture out of them as their symptom. But on the other hand, um, there is in a sense value because for that very reason that generations, people growing up at a given time within a a given political economy and expressing given symptoms can tell us something about the political economy and about surplus value. So I think there is value basically. As well as they're not being valued, you know. So we can we can discuss these two things. So yeah, this this like boomers. I mean, as a millennial, uh, obviously, you know, I find I find it really juicy the sort of um, criticisms of a generation that, in some ways, had it so differently to my generation. But on the other hand, there are a lot of similarities between millennials and boomers. Um, the first of all, first of them. You know, in terms of this sort of progressivism, progressivist politics, and the capture of a more traditional left towards professional concerns, and I think the author sort of argues that the that the um, 68 generation, in some ways, wants everything. You know, they they to be cool, to be rebellious, to you know, in the 68 sense, jouir sans entrave. And this is something that she talks about a lot. That this sort of um, again utopian idea. Jouir sans entrave means to enjoy without boundaries, not understanding the concept of, you know, mimetic desire, lack, desire in a psychoanalytic sense, you only want what you can't have, that the, the border or the boundary instantiates desire. You know, everything from the way that we, you know, engage in sexual activities, etc., proves this. Uh, but I won't go into it here. But so so this sort of like a delusion of having your cake and eating it, and that, that that is going to be both um materially and libidinally satisfying. So they want to be sort of, she argues that they want to be um within the establishment, that have the spores of the establishment, as well as being rebels at the same time. And of course, we see something similar within the professional class of the millennial generation or, you know, certain upper echelons or people who are making sort of a um an, a career out of their individual identity or their um, individual work. Um, But maybe there's a difference between this sort of lifestyle choice of this capture of the so-called emancipatory, which I don't think it is in terms of this sort of progressive capitalistic values, this utopianism, so capturing the left from left wing, um, bearing in mind of contradiction, understanding uh, surplus value into sort of a lifestyle choice. And the millennials, on the other hand, it sort of becomes a career choice because that lifestyle choice has been enacted by the boomer generation. And so the millennial almost has no choice but to participate in those values in order to save their career in order to because that's sort of the ideological framework in which we live. Um, This sort of um, politics without emancipation. I was also struck, you know, she talks about a lot this idea of sex as as emancipatory you know, by definition, which is something that is not um, brought out in psychoanalysis really at all, um, unless you understand very early Freud without understanding his entire, the entire sort of gamut of his work as well as 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 other psychoanalysts, um, because desire is dialectic. Um, And this sort of misunderstanding of Freud, obviously, in 68, Freud wasn't around, hadn't been dead so long. And we had, you know, Heirs to Freud, like Lacan, who was still working, so I don't think his his work had been really digested. And obviously, in this sort of have it all utopian mentality, um, what a great idea! Sex solves everything, um, but as well, you know, sex is where is a place of contradiction, of lack, of also trauma, of all these different things. And I think there's a real misunderstanding of Freud that happened, and that was um, the the misunderstanding happened through capitalist ideology, which is. This is sex sex essentialism, essentially, um, whereas sex is, like everything that makes the human subject what it is, divided, contradictory, and it is um, different than other aspects of human subjectivity in that it's like a direct confrontation with uh, the trauma of lack, the void, which um, we deal with in certain sort of um, modes of enactment around sex Um, and I think we've talked many times about why rape is so traumatic why rape is almost like the the ultimate injury or harm or crime because that is sex without fantasy fantasy is part of sex shields us from the trauma of confrontating confronting the nothingness in sex so yes this idea and there's sort of this misunderstanding that um You know, Lacan sort of understood this, that like if you understand one Lacanian concept, you almost understand all of it. So in a way, if you understand how sex operates, you understand human subjectivity. That is not to say that everything that humans do is about sex. So this sort of Reikian idea and many others in the sort of 20th century theorists that you know any, we talked about, uh, was it Ted Kaczynski last week talks about surrogate activities, that everything's a surrogate activity for sex, that everything is, that civilization is all about repression. Yes and no, it's much more complicated than that. And when I think when we talk in sort of um, a sexual sense about repression, we're not understanding that repression is really about repression of contradiction more than repression of sex. You know, so you have this Reich's analysis of of, um, of uh, Hitler's Germany that it was all about sexual repression and, you know, denial of sexual drive and stuff. But it's like you only have to look at um, Nazi uniforms to see that they are like literally BDSM uniforms. <laughs> and You know, there's, there's highly sexually charged, highly sexually charged. Like the Third Reich is, is not about repression. Um, it is repressive, has repressive, horrible, murderous politics But it's not about sexual oppression, I would argue. So, yes, this sort of um, delusion that sex is necessarily emancipatory in the same way that the personalist political has this weird capitalistic bent where it ends up stealing the the negative universal of um, that which makes us human, that which is of the left into personal commodified categories, self-help etc rather than understanding the political economy etc um i have a lot of points here but maybe we can save them but yeah i you know it's interesting you know she talks a lot about um you know class antagonism being forgotten by this generation this um an idea of you know you can't be too political having been extremely weirdly apolitically performatively political in their youth uh then having a sort of cultural value of you know don't challenge the system too much don't be too political it's unbecoming <laughs> when of course yes t- to be political in a truly political sense is to challenge this sort of um, consumerist non-politics the sum- consumerist non-political ideological system she talks about this generation as being very consumerist and i think you know where i would you know there's many ways that i would differentiate my opinions on um the generations from from this author um, but she, she she's quite like judgmental you know <laughs> um and sort of talks about you know the, the moral responsibility and ethics of this generation and you know they they obviously came out of the given um uh, situation so i th- don't think we should forget that and you know what their parents went through um in terms of world wars you know i think maybe um speaks to something you know that they're that they're, they're trying to not reenact. They're trying desperately to not reenact. But yes, she does talk about sort of the decadence of this generation. It's almost like um, the consumerist who um, has aspirations or values that are like a very poorly understood version of the aristocrat or princess. That you know, one has one's cake and one eats it without responsibility to um, you know those who one is supposed to. Be, um, have some responsibility too, um, and then yes, we were going to talk about the, the millennial generation and how how this is different. Obviously, as a as a millennial again, I have a lot of thoughts about this, um, and in a way, what strikes me is um, the continuation. Like I really recognise in what she's saying so much about. In terms of our own generation. Corporations were placing churches as the consciousness of America. Um, the worship of just as the, you know, the essentialism of sex, the misunderstanding of sex, this is this the essentialism of the child, um, this romantic um belief in in the oneness of an essential before the corruption of becoming, you know, a, an adult. Um which really does misunderstand, which is highly religious. And again, I talk about this all the time, we live in highly religious times Um, and doesn't really understand Freud, (laughs) who a lot of the um, secondary tertiary critical theorists of the 20th century, that a lot of the millennial, certainly liberal arts students were, um, you know, sucked the teat off university, um, you know, they really go against the insights of Freud. You know, this sort of commodified critical theory is very against, very much (laughs) in contrast (laughs) to the depth ambivalence and, um, you know, foregrounding of contradiction of the likes of psychoanalysis, Freud, Lacan, etc. Again, she repeats a lot about how the millennials use the aesthetics of emancipation to steal emancipation from, from those, from, from essentially the worker class. Um, and she talks a lot about how um, the idealism of the boomer generation has really come home to roost. The downside has come home to roost with with my generation, um, talking about... Um, ideas like marriage, et cetera, et cetera, which we can get into. So, um, yes, I agree with a lot of what she's saying, but there's a lot of areas where maybe I'd be a bit more, um, a bit less harsh and also a bit more uh, interested in political economy. But I think it's a really interesting book and I enjoyed reading it.
0: All right, Nina, you're up.
2: Um, yeah, so I, I agree. I think this book is very snappy and engaging, and is filled with kind of lots of interesting details and facts about these various kind of uh, boomer characters that she sort of picks out as sort of exemplars. Even though some of them, kind of uh, uh, like Steve Jobs, are actually sort of not uh, typical boomers in some ways, as she as she also suggests. And I, I. Yeah, I, I almost. It's, it's obviously, you know, she, she, she's the editor of uh, the American Conservative, or one of the editors. So, so she's writing from a position that is, that is a right wing position or a conservative position, um, which. I think is also makes it uh, perhaps more interesting. You know, it, it doesn't fall prey to the kind of uh, a lot of cultural criticism, which basically takes as read that everyone is more or less left liberal and and so on. And I think that that sort of partly explains her quite judgmental and moralistic um, uh, tone and the fact that she's sort of condemning uh, the boomers um, for a lot of their. Um, yes their their liberalism their letting slide of virtue their obsession with sex their self obsession their yeah they're kind of almost like introverted narcissism everything is always about them every decade is somehow dominated by the boomers and you know there is a truth to that and I I was listening actually to this um series of, of uh of uh podcasts by um Alf who Al i I can't say it Al bunga bunga, who are quite an interesting group of people who um have done like a five or six part series. I only got to the number three um which was on boomers um and they they're they're, they're looking at generations two at the moment, and I think it is a very very interesting topic, and I think they're that the um, the podcast I just mentioned, whose name I'm not going to repeat, are also very um, concerned to keep in the picture questions of class um, and not uh, just accept this idea of a kind of you know that they're sort of problematizing and, and thinking very dialectically about the very idea of generation. Um, but I do I I do find myself increasingly interested in. Um, generation with all of these caveats that Helen mentioned as well you know that they whether there is something ineffable or or, or sort of um you know that the sort of floats through a cohort or that kind of characterizes a group of people even where there are differences you know whether it's partly to do with the kind of music we listen to or the films we watched or the comedy that was around when we were teenagers or the media that we consumed I mean of course we can't be too um you know too too strong on the on the way in which the media affects um who we are and how we think and um you know it's an interesting question to me as as a sort of gen X a sort of supposed sandwich <laughs> generation it's like who are the parents of the millennials right so if my parents were like early boomers right so they were born in just after the war like immediately after the war forty six 47. uh you know my father is seventy five yes you know so they're they' they're now fully uh Old um and they're boomers, they're early boomers. So I think millennial parents, you know, if, if millennials are born sort of around um I guess when 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 do they begin? So if 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 Gen X is loosely sort of 68 to 80, I'm at the end of, of Gen X at 78 and then sort of 80. So most of the, the boom the millennials I know are kind of born in the yeah, they're, so they're 80s and 90s. So like Alfie was born in 1990. Um, and so the, in a way, the parents of the millennials must be late boomers and early Gen X, actually. So people who were born in the late 60s who are early Gen X, according to these, you know, they're, slight, they're slightly sliding these these kind of cohort definition, generational definitions. But then it's, it's so, so it seems to me that the, the pl- parents of millennials are going to be uh late boomers or mid to late boomers and early gen x parents right so these are the, the the parents of the millennials i think that that must be correct although i'm not very good with with dates but um it's and and one of the kind of implicit arguments or she sort of makes us at the end is is as helen said that millennials are kind of like inverted boomers that actually you know even though millennials are often pitched and the her big her Hey, Boonga Boonga podcast makes this point too, that millennials are obviously increasingly pitted against the boomers. And even sometimes in their own self-conception, it's, it's, you know, blame the boomers because the boomers had everything. The Millennials, despite their best efforts are not getting the the future that they're promised and their parents in a way are not also passing on um, the wealth that they accrued and that there's something kind of fundamentally selfish and narcissistic about the boomer generation. Um, and you know the millennials are something like a surplus generation. You know it doesn't matter how many degrees you've got, how much you know social capital you've you've got, how many people you've cancelled in order to step on someone else. You know, get ahead. Um, you know you're still screwed. Um, you know because there is no future for you. And and the boomers are still clinging on, and they still define the culture. Um, and so millennials are these kind of inverted boomers, but except where the boomers had fun and took drugs and had sex, like it's not like the millennials don't have sex and take drugs, right? Obviously dating apps and I don't know, lots of people are on medication and antidepressants and hormone treatments and uh, Adderall and, you know, there's there's, there's it's probably no less drugs. In fact, there's probably more drugs being taken as well as kind of recreational drugs. Um And probably, in a sense, more sex, actually, in terms of those people who are using dating apps and having casual sex, um, you know, which quite a lot of young people do. Um, But it doesn't seem to have the joy (laughs) in it that at least the the boomers in their kind of nostalgic uh, memory seem to recall and seem to kind of um, revel in the idea that they were experiencing were expressing freedom from constraint, as as Helen said, which, of course, is... uh, Impossible, in fact, um, and ultimately self defeating, and, and because actually freedom is is not freedom from all constraints despite what consumer capitalism and choice and this logic of choice seems to promise or utopia but rather um, it is controlling your <laughs> your desire um, or understanding it in the first place or at least trying to uh, rather than being dominated um, by it which is what happens when you become a purely consumerist subject you end up getting hooked on one thing or another or you become kind of dominated by your desires and in that sense you're not free at all and we've talked about this Um, before. So I quite like the conservative moralism of this book by Helen Andrews. And she she has a little photograph and she looks very sensible and very kind of like preppy. And I quite like this image of her and and this, you know, and, and she also reminded me, weirdly, of, of of Welbeck. I mean, in a way, it's not weird because Welbeck also takes aim at the boomers and, and his parents were, like, in a commune. They were real hippies, you know, and he hates that. Like, he clearly hates that sexual revolution, liberation thing, and, you know, he's disgusted by it, you know, even as he's still caught in the same machinations of, of desire and, and sex and so on, but, but deals with it in a different way. Um, whereas, yeah, I mean... So Helen Andrews and she also speaks on this podcast, uh, the other podcast um, as well, quite quite well about uh, about precisely this domination of every cultural e- um, epoch by the the Boomers. And it's interesting if Gen X did have a decade, it would have been the nineties in a way. And I think that was the decade, obviously, where you started to have the internet come in, but it was in this kind of interregnum, really, between the end of the Cold War and and you know the the start of the new techno uh millennium i mean strictly it was millennium uh, and everyone was worried about the millennium bug i don't know if people remember that it was very strange <laughs> sort of form of moral panic um but yes anyway so so we had this kind of decade i think in between uh i guess the you know the the boomer dominated 60s the boomer dominated 70s the boomer dominated 80s where they all got rich and uh and then the 90s i you know what was what were the boomers doing then? Well, well, they were bringing up their their children, um, but I think there's something about this this idea of like uh, the self hypnotized generation, the boomers as being kind of in a way self contained, like everything refers to them, uh, including their children in a way, like their children are another project that the boomers have, and I think. We were just about the last generation to be able to establish any kind of autonomy, but it came at a serious cost. Somehow, like I, you know, so many Gen X people are are, are dead from suicide and uh, you know suffered a great deal of depression and, and drug use. And um, you know, again, I always need to kind of uh, look at the stats on this. Um, but we're we were like weirdly, very weirdly depressed generation and very sort of withdrawing. Um, and I think, yeah, that preemptive meh kind of whatever refusal of participation in the system was was almost like the flip side of the the counter culture. It's like that's the bit of the counterculture that we inherited was the refusal to participate and everything was about not selling out and you know, you wouldn't do anything that you thought was like, you know. Uh, for the man or whatever, like that—that that was the aspect that we retained, but none of the other stuff really. Um, although it was hedonistic too. And the 90s were very hedonistic. Um, so yeah, I this idea I think of of millennials as inverted boomers is an interesting one. I think because of the I'll just finish on this point. This kind of idea of like a moral backlash, right? So if the boomers represent this kind of like disgusting, excessive, you know, hedonistic, um. I don't know indulgence of desire of all kind, you know, and then and, and you know having the money to do so in general. Obviously, there are poor boomers too, um, but you know, as as a generation, they did very well. Um, it you know, there's something about the ascetic, judgmental quality of millennials, whether they're left or right. And and obviously, Andrews is on the is on the right, so she's pro family, and and she makes a very good point. I think that the like Aaron Sorkin and other left liberal cultural. Um, titans, if you like, never were never able to depict the ride cor- correctly. You know, and there is something about that. Boomers, lib- left liberal boomers, are very self satisfied, and they're very unable to see other ways of looking at the world. And there's a very vicious way in which some millennials have taken that up <laughs> in the same way that there is only one way of seeing things, and that anyone who disagrees with you must be a fascist or something, someone terrible. Um, and so I think that's we have to think of like this inverted boomer thing. It's like both the judgment of the excessive enjoyment and the, the judgment of, you know, this this jouissance apparently without limits. Um, what that actually does, what that actually looks like as a kind of form of, of inverted enjoyment, which itself is kind of ascetic um and judgmental and kind of uh, that the enjoyment is not overt like there is enjoyment of course there is everything is about enjoyment so the enjoyment comes from the judgment partly you know judgment itself has become completely saturated with pleasure and and pleasure and enjoyment not the same obviously but the kind of jouissance of judging others seems to be very characteristic of the millennial generation whereas i think we just were like whatever (laughs) like definitely like not completely indifferent of course but really Bizarrely liberal in a, in a negative way, like in a sense of being more or less um, indifferent or accepting, not in an affirmatory way, but in a kind of like quasi-nihilistic way. And millennials are not indifferent. They are extremely judgmental.
0: All right. My turn. There's a classic left-wing argument against generational frames. It goes something like this. Generational frames muddle class distinctions. Billionaires and workers don't share the same perspective or interests just because they were born in 1950. Worse, by suggesting that they do, we we encourage boomer workers to resist the millennial left. For those who hold this left-wing position, there are few books worse than Helen Andrews' Boomers. Andrews has a bachelor's in religious studies from Yale and currently works as senior editor for the American Conservative. Andrew's critique of the boomers focuses heavily on social and cultural issues. She criticizes television, hippies, and the sexual revolution. And she describes the boomers as responsible for these things. But of course, the boomers didn't invent televisions. They didn't invent the pill. It was their parents and grandparents who invented these things and put them in the boomers' hands. Political economy plays almost no role in Andrew's story. Television and the sexual revolution are consequences of capitalism. It's capitalism that pushes women into the workforce. It's capitalism that pushes mass entertainment onto workers, keeping them from getting bored and uppity. But Andrews is staunchly pro-capitalist, and she hates rebellion. Why does she hate rebellion? In her chapter on boomers, she argues that the hippies abandoned the poor in favor of pet social issues, that their protests generated more opposition than support, that it was all a futile exercise. In her chapter on millennials, she argues that millennial rebellions are gross because they might succeed. And she argues they might succeed because the boomers have succeeded in eroding institutional safeguards. So Andrews hates TV, but she hates the rebellions TV's help, TV helps prevent. And she hates rebellions both because they fail and because they might yet succeed because they have been quietly succeeding. The argument is muddled because it's an argument that has been couched in purely cultural terms. Most of the chapters of the book are named after individual boomers. One is called Steve Jobs, another Jeffrey Sachs, another Camille Paglia. In Andrew's narrative, these individuals and the generation they represent author cultural change. They are responsible for the world we live in. They make the waves that crush us. This is idealism. No individual or group makes the waves the waves are made by the political and economic system we are just riding them and when we ride them skillfully we appear to command them the movers didn't invent tv they didn't invent the pill they respond to conditions that are not of their own making this is not to say there's no point to discussing generations i love our generational discussions on this show and i think we should have more generational discuss- discussions are enriching when we are looking at the generations that as authors of society but as symptoms of structural phenomena. If you look at boomers, Gen Xers and millennials and you control for class differences, there are meaningful differences between boomer professionals, Gen X professionals and millennial professionals. Each of these generations came along at a different point in the process of capitalist accumulation and each experiences the system of political economy from a different temporal vantage point. So you can learn something about the system by looking at what it produces. It's very hard to find books that discuss this at all, let alone books that do it well. Most of the people who wanna talk about capitalism don't wanna talk about generations. And most of the people who wanna talk about generations don't wanna talk about capitalism. This means that when Nina wants us to have a talk about generations, she has to pick a book like Andrews Boomers. It's not a great book, but it may allow us to have a great discussion.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. One thing I, oh, shit, I have to unmute myself. I was going to say, OK, is I, aside from, yeah, the issues which I, I agree with you about the idealism and picking these, these characters, you know, we can take these characters as you place, as, as symptoms. And, you know, that's interesting. But yes, whether they individually um ha- have a, have a you know, controlling role. Obviously, people can be very influential or whatever. Um, I also want to discuss as well what you guys think about this like denigration of popular culture as if it's like the most awful thing um but the um damn damn I'm I've lost my thread (laughs) god I I forget to press record on the on the video and then I lose my the thread of my argument um oh yes was it was quite um confusingly written like I don't I don't think it really um Maybe it's because it's a perspective, yes, that I'm not used to sort of entertaining or whatever, but it was quite it's quite it's quite jarring to me.
0: It's polemical. It's yes. not written to be a formal argument. It's yes. written to be polemical, so it has inconsistencies and internal tensions that service the polemical emotional rhetorical function of the book. Yes. But don't really work from an argument standpoint. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the book, insofar as you enjoy it, it's about whether you enjoy the polemical tone of it because a lot of the specific points it makes are in service of that tone rather than developing an argument.
2: I think, yes. I think to her credit, her reference point is the eminent Victorians, the Lytton strategy, which she points out was not an accurate depiction of the characters that it took down. So in a way, her framework is, is sort of admitting, or, you know, pr- like very, very forward-facingly saying, you know, these are not going to be necessarily completely fair portraits of these people. And I... So I, I, I can kind of excuse that. And I, I did learn a lot of interesting facts, right? I didn't feel totally stable in all of the facts that she was using, right? I did I definitely felt that they were being used to a particular end and, you know, but I, I thought she was honest when she said that there were certain aspects, you know, like a Steve Jobs that, for example, that didn't fit her overall boomer narrative. And indeed she starts with Steve Jobs. So it's kind of weird because she almost preemptively undercuts her own claim, <laughs> her own generalization. Um which I thought was a bit odd. Like, I don't know why he was first, but I I mean, I can understand for other reasons because of his uh, utter dominance um, of of that generation. But it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I I find it very entertaining. And I actually did, like I say, I actually enjoy, I find it refreshing to have the, the upbeat, jaunty, moralistic, judgmental thing, because I, whilst I agree that it's the economic you know, the, the, to, to talk about structural economic conditions and shift in labour and, and technology and production and value are, are more worthy, like they're, they're going to be better and deeper explanations, um, clearly, um, and that we we require those, you know, I mean, it's my parents when they talk about, for example, their not uncommon elevation from the working class to the middle class which is a you know classic boomer story they both went to uh they both passed the 11 plus so they went to a grammar school uh they both had a scholarship they're the first person in their family to go to well my dad didn't go to university but he went to college and they had they both had full grants you know and they were able through these these mechanisms which existed to to, to enter into the middle class. You know, they, they were able to buy a house for uh, in, in the 70s for something like £8,000. Like by the time they finished paying off their mortgage, it was £2.50 a month. Seriously, you know, I mean, it was insane. Like they both managed to get full time jobs when they were twenty one. You know, they met when they were twenty or twenty one. They got married at twenty three. You know, I mean, it it was absolutely possible to do all Mm -hmm. these things, and Mm -hmm. they were not unusual. They are very much like all their friends, where I grew up in this village. And you know, it's um, you know, that's that was possible. So the way the way the point I was trying to make is the way they talk about it is about luck. They say we were lucky. Right. They they don't, for example, say it was our hard work that got us here. They say we were we were lucky, but they don't necessarily go any deeper than that. But I wouldn't necessarily want them to or need them to. You know what I mean? It's like they understand that there was something different about their generation compared to even to mine uh, and my brother's. you know, and, and in that sense, my parents have been very generous, although I know a lot of boomers who are not generous, and in fact, even ones who are much wealthier than my parents, who are actually very, very mean about money and don't support their kids and, and are very weird to their kids, actually, don't regard their kids as, as, as people to be loved and understood as individuals, but rather as like some weird project that they did, (laughs) like in the past.
0: I think a lot of this has to do with, when we talk about generations, what we're really doing is we're talking about the story of the professional class as a distinct class. A story which begins largely with the boomers because there were not very large numbers of professionals prior to the boomers, right? And that's why we don't spend a lot of time generally talking about the silent generation or the greatest generation Mm. because, Those generations, insofar as they got homes, it was through things like the GI Bill, not because they went and got degrees and they uh, qualified for it. And so the boomers are, in a a sense, a kind of new money generation. They're a set of people who had upward mobility, gotten to a class they'd not previously been in. And so I think that the best way to think about the boomers is, is to kind of think about them the way that aristocrats thought about the bourgeoisie when the bourgeoisie first came on the scene, right? And the professional class is, of course, not the bourgeoisie. It's not the landowning, property-owning class. Mm. It's a class of people who have degrees. So when the bourgeoisie first come onto the scene, the aristocrats' opinion is that they don't know what to do with their money. They are hedonistic, flippant. They have ungoverned desires. They don't know what they're doing. And they... Uh, lack political maturity. They're not used to using or wielding power. They don't know how to use or wield it. They're accustomed to being rebels, to being uh, people, merchants who are operating at the fringes of the social structure and of being in uh, agony with the aristocracy. So they're used to being rogues and they're used to being at, at the fringe. And we still see it the the character that in an earlier types of societies the bourgeoisie are most sympathetic to is the rogue the the rogue who <laughs> scrapper who just makes a living by hard work and and lying and cheating and stealing they, they have great sympathy for the rogue because the bourgeoisie still views itself as the rogue in a society dominated by some powerful structural other right so when the aristocracy is talking about the rising bourgeoisie it gives all of the same criticisms which the old traditional American ruling class levels at the boomers, right? Because the boomers are new to money, don't know what to do with it. And then one of the things that we see with the the bourgeoisie is the bourgeoisie is initially resistant and reluctant to pass on all of its wealth to its own children because it thinks that the children need to go and make livings for themselves. So you have all of these big robber barons who are giving huge amounts of their wealth away to charity in the, in the 19th century, in part to make themselves look good politically, but also because they're not entirely convinced that their children should all inherit it. They're mm-hmm. used to arguing against inheritance and against the privileges of the aristocratic system, right? So they don't want to give their children access to the same things that they had. In fact, they think that their suffering and misery under the landed aristocracy is something that made them better people. In the same way, the boomers, because they're new to money, think that their children should suffer the way that they suffered. They don't understand that the purpose of money is to create uh, a self-sustaining kind of of family unit that doesn't have to experience that because they themselves were not born into this class. They have no experience of the class. They don't really know what the class's own values are because they, they weren't born into it. So their children, the millennials, are born into the professional class and are raised professional class. And that's what differentiates millennials from their parents. Their parents were born working class and became professional class. And because they became professional class, they don't really understand what their (laughs) own class is because they weren't raised in it. So they don't really know what values come out of it. And they are surprised by the values of their children in the same way that a member of the bourgeoisie is surprised by the values of of his own children in the 19th century, because they have raised children who were born into a class that they themselves only were able to access through, through luck and good fortune. And that's the estrangement between the millennials and the boomers.
1: It's, it's interesting because actually my mum's uh, trajectory is very similar sounds like to to your parents, Nina, grammar school, mm. uh, 11 plus grammar school, university, blah, 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 you know. And um, I think, you know, ideologically speaking, obviously capitalism, it's like it's all, you know, and this is, this is, as you said, Benjamin, the, the ideology for, for the class you're referring to is, you know, hard work or whatever. Um and so it can be very difficult. It can almost be traumatic to people to admit the hand of luck in their lives, and then ideologically justify it with you know their own hand, you know their own hard work. And of course, you, you know people still had to work hard. It's just degrees of hard work, you know? and obviously, you know we did an episode on contingency, and contingency really is that which undercuts everything that which sort of weirdly generated our universe as well. And it's very traumatic to, you know, it's, it's like the atheistic move, the truly atheistic move is to admit uh, a contingency. To so, so I think for a lot of, um, let's say, boomers who experienced luck, not to generalise, there might be an aspect of being able to stomach the fact that it was luck, which it sounds like, you know, your parents well. do... The
0: the, the point about meritocracy, right? The other side of meritocracy is the idea that some people deserve to be worse off than their parents. Mm -hmm. This is something that only sounds plausible if you were not born into a reasonably well-off circumstance. If you're born into a reasonably well-off circumstance, the idea that it should be possible for you to end up going down the economic ladder and having a lower standard of living and that your children should have a lower standard of living, it's a preposterous notion that anyone deserves to end up worse off Mm -hmm. as an adult than they were as a child, that anyone deserves to have a lower standard of living or to have children be at a lower standard of living is preposterous. This is obvious if you're born into the professional class, the idea that you should end up in a lower class or that your children should end up denied access to the educational opportunities that you had, it's preposterous. But if you're a boomer who got there through luck, who wasn't born into that generation, the idea that you would have access to all of these universities and schools, that doesn't seem like something which ought to just be fundamentally a right. Every class, once it gets established, it thinks that the things that it has at the beginning of life are things which ought to be rights, that it just ought to be entitled to. The landed aristocrat Because he's had wealth for generations, because Mm -hmm. as a child he was born into wealth, he thinks it would be unimaginable for this to be taken away from him. How would he make his way in the world if he didn't have these things? He was born with these things. He doesn't know how to live without these things. They fundamentally conditioned who he is. So, what? You're going to take away all of the things that he had? You're going to take away the castle and you're going to take away all of the people who took care of him? How preposterous is that? How is he supposed to make it in the world without those things? Those were things he had when he was two. Without and the trying, same goes, right? Without doing anything to deserve them or merit them, and the same goes for every type of class. Once it gets established, every class once it gets established thinks the things it had when it was children should just be basic and things that everybody should have. So the millennials, in their focus on tuition-free college, in their focus on universal health care, when they were born, their their boomer parents had health insurance that they were on because they were children. And their boomer parents could send them to college because they had decent professional class incomes. We're really only talking about the professional class. We're not talking about workers. The generational conversation is really just a professional class conversation, right? So because millennial children just had healthcare and education without trying, it is, of course, intuitive to them that everybody should have these things without trying, that they should be basic rights, and that you should not be in a position of, if you don't make it economically, suddenly your children can't go to the schools you went to, suddenly you can't go see the kinds of doctors you were previously able to see. It strikes millennials as obviously preposterous, right? And it should, it should.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It should strike them as obviously
0: preposterous. Once you you get established, Once you get established as a class, the mature thing to do is to recognize that the things that you needed early in life to get established are things that obviously anybody needs early in life to get established. Mm -hmm. And then you have to make a decision. Either you should be trying to universalize that class position and give it to everybody and give everybody those benefits that you had, or you have to affirm that there should be a class barrier and that your class specifically should have the rights to those things. And the reason you would affirm a class barrier is because you believe it's impossible to give them to everybody. Yeah. Right? you have, and,
1: the, you have the, the deplorable moral barrier now of, as long as you have my ideas, you can have these things. Yeah.
0: But every, every class, once it reaches maturity, it realizes that it needs a, you, know, you need a set of background conditions to be able to reproduce the class. That the set of background conditions are non-negotiable and have to be there. For the class to be reproduced, and so either you have to affirm that everybody should have them, or you have to affirm that the class as as such should have a right to them. Yeah, and that's what that's what boomers really struggle with: the idea that people would believe that they have a right to be professional because boomers think they got it by luck. They go, "Why would anybody think they have a right to be professional?"
2: Yeah, I mean, a and of boomers things... have no
0: education to speak of compared to their millennial children.
2: Yeah. It, a couple of things. Like, oh, yeah, so many things, actually. But it's interesting, the older boomers, like my parents, you know, they were brought up with rationing. And actually, it was quite hard to make them kind of excessive hedonistic consumers. And my parents... Re- for example, never really bought into that when they retired, they became slightly more they they changed their supermarket, right, but when we were growing up, they were unbelievably frugal about everything. We never went to restaurants, we ate everything that was in the house, there was never any leftovers. if there was ever any food left, my father would rather run an extra five kilometers than waste the food, right like he he really saw it in this calorific way like there was to be no waste whatsoever, you know we it was it was very you know, I mean, it was, it was very healthy, actually, it's a very healthy way to be brought up in psychically and, and, you know, physiologically, because you don't, you know, overeat and you don't, you know, uh you 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 take the value of things. Um but I think, you know, as that as they the older boomers got older, they were more and more entranced with the with the luxury and decadence. And it and it occurs to me that the millennials, you know, because they don't have anything else, it is the, the beliefs are luxury. And other people have made this point, you know, that it's the luxury beliefs is all they have, right? So no wonder they cling on to them and and punish other people who don't have the same Positions, because you know, with in the absence of all of these adult markers, it's like, what else do you have? Other yes, than you have your, a poly, you have
1: a liberal arts degree.
2: Yeah, and it's like you know, you you don't have a garden. You probably don't have a pet because you know you don't have anywhere that you own to have a pet, or, or you're renting and that you're not allowed a pet. You're not going to get married probably, or you might not have kids, or like you know, you you can have um, commodified sex with other people who are a bit like you or that you meet through an app. And it's like ordering a pizza from Uber. And, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's like, oh, my God, you know, it's like the takeaway generation, but nothing is permanent. Like, you know, it's very hard to establish anything stable, you know. And and I remember one of the narratives I just wanted to to, that came to mind when Benjamin was speaking was during the 2010 um, student protests, you know, around fees. And obviously I was the the single last cohort in 1997. I, I didn't pay fees to go to university. I was the last year, the very final year local authority paid right and you you obviously had to get the grades to go to university like I got three A's at A level it was a very big deal like it was it was all to do with how you how well you did like I went to a normal comprehensive school and there were only two people in my year who got three A's at A level it was quite a thing you know they didn't just hand out A's <laughs> like they do now um, but you know we weren't allowed to take more than three A levels like unlike people at private schools because they didn't have the capacity to teach. And, you know, so there was like a science boy and I was like the kind of arts and humanities person who, who ended up getting the, these good grades and they went to good university. And it was basically all about, yeah, like this meritocratic idea that you would be funded if you had worked hard Um, just about and I did so I didn't pay fees and I felt very very privileged in the old sense of the word to go to university and I did not for a second think that I wouldn't be judged I thought this is going to be very difficult and I you know that I'm prepared to be criticized and that you know I certainly didn't think that a degree was a product I didn't think that I was the product of a degree I I was there to learn and to, to try and understand philosophy and literature in the first place um you know, and I was very, very excited about it. And I was slightly disappointed to meet all of these lackadaisical private school people who didn't seem to give a fuck about what we were reading. <laughs> and I was very rude to them in seminars. And I said, you can't talk if you haven't read the book. And my tutors had to say, look, we don't disagree with you, Nina, but you have to calm down. Um, <laughs> but the point about this is, when in 2010, when we were campaigning for you know, not just a n- not bringing in the fees, but also eliminating fees for education and getting the state again to pay for fees. We were criticizing the boomers specifically. And there was a generational logic in what we were saying, which is like, you all had free education. You know, you all had access to these things and you are the ones taking it away from your own children. You know, like we were trying to play this quite manipulative game, but not, not inaccurately. You know, and and you can see a version of this in Greta Thunberg, you know, the young girl shouting at older men, you know, telling them off in this bizarre performance play and enjoyment of the older men being told off by like a childlike woman, young woman. But there was something like, you know, about the selfishness of that, like the closing, like what Benjamin was saying about the kind of class closing of the, I don't know, like, what is that, you know, to say... You can't have what we have, like you can't have a free university education.
1: But is this, you know, because um, there's a few things in, in, in what you say there, but just to pick up on this boomer responsibility question, to to a certain extent, this is an inevitable shift as in a wider political economy shift that more and more people have to go to education because there aren't, because of the changing nature of the economy to keep them busy and not have them have jobs for four years and also to indenture them in debt, which is a way to sort of like generate surplus value for the system that with the tendency of the rate of profit to decline, like this is an inevitability. So it's not just boomers being like, ha you're not gonna get it because so many people got educated. And part of the thing was, of course, that there were so many fewer people, places at a fully funded university than there are in the sort of explosion of the university system.
0: So one one of the things that I think is really hard about this is that when when we talk about the middle class in the old sense, we're talking about the bourgeoisie as a middle class between the aristocracy and the peasantry. And that's a bourgeoisie that is going to become the ruling class, right? So it's a middle class, but it's a class that's being empowered and it gradually becomes the dominant class and it displaces the aristocracy. In contrast to that case, the professional class was never created to replace the bourgeoisie, has no potential of replacing it. Indeed, the existence of the professional class is a bit of a freak accident of the period of mid-century leveling and the world wars. So the professional class is a class that is becoming mature precisely as the economic conditions which gave rise to it are going away. Mm -hmm. So you have a group of people who Are trying to consolidate, the millennials are here to consolidate the position of the professional class. And they're imagining that they are here to take the professional class forward in much the same way that the children of the initial round of bourgeoisie were consolidating the position of the bourgeoisie, taking the bourgeoisie forward against the landed aristocracy. Here you have a set of millennials who are imagining that they're here to consolidate the professional class's position and take it on and forward against the bourgeoisie, but the professional class has been set up in such a way that it doesn't have the material power base to actually do that. Not only does it not have the material power base to consolidate and go forward, it does not have the material power base to defend itself and to stay in existence. So you have a generation which has been born into the idea that Education and healthcare should be universal and free, at least to everybody in their class position, if not to everybody writ large, right? And because of the muddling of class distinctions, a lot of professional class people don't understand themselves to be in a professional class as distinct from the workers. They think they're in a working the working class writ large, mm-hmm. so they think everybody should have education and healthcare, which is a wonderful thing that, that the professional class doesn't recognize itself as distinct and really thinks and wants to give uh, education, healthcare to the entire working class, right? But it's operating in a condition where this precisely is what cannot happen because not only can these things not be extended to the workers, but the professional class as such is dying and it can't even reproduce these benefits for itself. So you have a generation that is here to consolidate the position of a class which is dying and therefore is here with the intentions and purposes of doing precisely the opposite of what is going to happen. And this is an extremely unpleasant Mm -hmm. expectations reality check. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is entirely set up by the economic system, isn't set up by the boomers, isn't set up by the millennials. The criticism of the millennials is always, oh, the millennials have unrealistic expectations. But you can't be born into a class position and not think that you should be able to reproduce that, especially in a society which has this whole notion of progress and growth and living standard increase. The idea that you'd not be able to even reproduce your Mm -hmm. own position for your children in 20 or 30 years from after when you're born, that you can't even produce the living standard that existed 20 or 30 years ago for your own children no generation has ever been expected in the history of industrial capitalism to accept that
1: you know it's what you say in terms of the the existential the economic precarity the existential precarity the the ideological inculcation of you know get ahead work work succeed succeed and so you you know you 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 view yourself as a failure which is a horrible narcissistic injury and you know we're all going through it um even because you know obviously ideology god is unconscious you know we 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 believe in these things even if we can rationally fight against it um but yeah so but yes of course this um precarity on so many levels existential whatever leads to authoritarian politics and you've talked Benjamin a lot about like um having these these um desires to to um Universalized healthcare and everything, which is a fantastic, you know, aspiration and, and universalize um education, uh, tuition. But at the same time, we do see a very, very um interesting dynamic of, and Nina touched on this with the luxury beliefs, self-differentiation at the level of the political. And we see, you know, because you're talking about um I think you may touch on this as well. And I know, and, you know, and I know the book touches on this, you know, this um, selling, selling back to us as consumers, um, basically less and less and less as an emancipatory, with an emancipatory sort of like guys. So, you know, eating less meat, you know, taking up, living in a tiny home or whatever. But it's all um, given to us in the terms of, I think, that sort of liberal arts degree. um. A politically, capitalistically apolitically political jargon um and i think you know we do see this in terms of the political the it, it's interesting because there's there's things in in this book yes it's a conservative uh writer but that are that you know can be read from all um a talking point that can be turned into or analyzed from a leftist perspective like family or whatever and it's interesting that we've seen a lot of maybe like millennial ideologues who are of i would call them right wing deviation of the left i left capitalistic left i.e authoritarian right anyway um saying that anybody who says this anybody who analyzes this as a symptom of the market is a fascist or whatever, which is totally awful. Um, so taking away everything from people and and seeing everything in values or casting things that are values of a different class who do have to face the contradiction of surplus value day-to-day as reactionary because it doesn't fit with their version of the political, which was a consumerist politics.
0: It's It's in part because... The, the best thing about the millennial professional class is also the worst thing about it, which is that the millennial professional class thinks that the working class, that it's part of the working class. Mm-hmm. It doesn't observe the distinction between professional and working. So on the one hand, it wants to extend healthcare and education to the entire working class. On the other hand, it thinks that the working class should be capable of modes of thought, which it itself is capable of. Because it doesn't recognize itself as a distinct class. And insofar as the millennials have tried to recognize themselves as a distinct class, they've only been able to do it in racialized terms. So they can say they're racially privileged as white millennials, but then they still have no compassion for a white working class person who is unable to use the terms or have the perspective which they have. And because they don't have a class consciousness that they are professionals and not conventional workers, that the professional class is a distinct part of society. Because they don't understand that, or if they do understand it, they want to minimize the difference and go, it's just a stratum issue. As a lot of uh, Marxists who are relatively well-educated on the subject, they like to minimize it by saying, this is just a question of strata, uh, but fundamentally it's all working class. They wanna say it's just bourgeoisie and proletarian. Mm-hmm. It's always just bourgeoisie and proletariat. Anything else creates divisions which can lead to uh, the, the dysfunction within the movement. So therefore they wanna insist it's a stratum issue. Um, but even if you, if you make that kind of move, you know, then you don't see the degree to which the professional class really does experience totally different circumstances from the rest of the working class, really does enjoy a suite of things that the working class does not enjoy. And that it's that mystification, which on the one hand makes the professional class open-handed and wanting to give to the workers, but it is also the thing that makes them scornful of the workers for being unable to have the same cultural-
1: The, um, the terrible frustration of contemporary pol- yeah. politics is you, yeah. you you subjectively shat upon by a, a side of the political that might help you materially. It's this, it's this horrible disjunction between the subjective patronization, subjective- um, denigration. And then the, maybe a, a, a side of the political that will fuck you economically will respect you subjectively.
0: Right. And even to defend, and the trouble that professionals find themselves in is even to defend their own rights and rights for themselves, they require help from these workers who they are constantly denigrating. Uh, and they're unable to protect the workers economically. And so the workers don't feel like they have anything to gain really from helping. You see this all the time with the attempts by university academics to leverage the uh, at, you know, the union struggles as a working thing. The workers have already lost most of the things which the public sector employees maintain. They don't feel like they have any chance of getting those things back. So why should they defend those rights which remain for professionals who look down on them culturally. It's its a huge mess, but we are at the hour. So we're gonna have to wrap it up for now, but we will go and do a B-side. We're gonna do a B-side for our Patreon supporters. So we would love it if you joined us over there, but if you, for some other reason, can't, have a lovely- <laughs> You're missing lovely out. Lovely rest of the day. <laughs> Bye-bye.
2: Bye.